Our Old Testament scripture reading is Psalm 94. It's also the text for our sermon, which is the psalm that we just sang together. And I meant it very sincerely that I want the way that the experience of singing it together is experienced to be part of how we hear and receive this text. Psalm 94. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exult? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a breath. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law, to give him rest from days of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. For justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Who rises up for me against the wicked? Who stands up for me against evildoers? If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. When the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. Can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute? They band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. But the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading is Ephesians 6 verses 10 through 13. So our our text is what we just read, Psalm 94. We're not returning to Ephesians, though this is a passage we looked at very recently. We read these words simply as a reminder of those theological themes that we saw, that we enjoyed together from that passage. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would 
Give us the blessing of the presence of your Holy Spirit so that we might have the wisdom we need to hear and understand and receive your word rightly. We desire to be challenged by your word, to be changed by it, not only to see and hear what we were already expecting or wanting, but to be surprised by what you have for us. For this to happen, it must be your blessing and your work, and so we seek your Holy Spirit's presence as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to capture, if I could, for a moment, what it felt a few minutes, what it felt like a few moments ago as we were singing together Psalm 94. What a glorious treasure we have as a congregation here in particular, as being part of the Reformed tradition and the blessings we have received. What a glorious we tre- treasure we have of singing the Psalms together. And so often, there, are, there is a moment that happens, two feelings at the very same time when we are doing this that I am at times tempted to be overcome by, and that is the feeling, first, of what a glorious, beautiful treasure this is, and also, second, how fragile it can so often feel. We know that this practice, even as we are loving it and delighting in it, is something that is so often not shared. And even among so many Reformed churches where it is done, it is not truly loved and delighted in. And so I come to this text this morning, to Psalm 94, asking a very simple question. Why do we do this? Why do we sing a psalm like Psalm 94? Why do we sing a psalm that begins with the words, Mighty Lord, the God of vengeance, God of vengeance, now shine forth. Many of you know, I know that you know, that this is not done out there. And that so often where something like this is done, it is not very often loved. And I want to pass on to you what I was uh, told so many times, uh, the same theme by actually a couple of different ministers when I was a kid going into college. And that is the theme regarding so many things in the Christian life, so many things in church practice, things we do together as a church, that if you do not love it, you will lose it. If you do not love it, it will not be passed on. If you are not truly delighting in it, the next generation certainly will not. And so we must ask together as a congregation, when it comes to something like singing a psalm, when we ask the why question, we must not settle simply for winning an argument. We must not settle simply being able to point to tradition, point to the history of the church, point to the scriptures and say, this is why psalm singing is right, this is why you are wrong. Because if that is all we do, we are not truly loving and delighting in it. And so my goal this morning in our few moments together in Psalm 94 is to help us with what I hope will feel like some fresh, encouraging ways to love and delight in this that we do together. To love and delight in singing a psalm like Psalm 94. Well, to get there, remember, the question we're bringing all throughout is why do we do this and why should we love it? To get there, I want to break up this psalm into three sections. The psalm actually does three things that some have even argued means it must be like a mashup of other songs. Now, it's not. It's woven together beautifully. It's clearly one work of poetry. But the three things it does are things that often are the one thing a psalm does, and it combines them. First, 
It is a lament about evil in verses 1 through 7. One of the things that simply does is say out loud that there is evil in the world. A lament about evil. Second, it expresses wisdom about the creator. This is the whole middle section. Now, it's woven together, so you can't do a hard transition. But we're going to see elements of this from verse 8 all the way through verse 19. Wisdom about the creator. Something we sing about. And then third, it is praise for God's judgments. In verses 20 through 23 in particular. But where did the psalm begin but praying for God to judge? Verse 2, rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. So first, a lament about evil. Second, wisdom about the creator. Third, praise for God's judgments. A lament about evil. Well, this is perhaps the most striking thing about the psalm, especially if this practice is in any way new to you of singing psalms. Or if you grew up singing psalms, and usually what it was was just sort of picking out the ones that mostly sound like hymns. If you're willing to sing psalms in a way that challenges you, this is what strikes you. The language of Psalm 94, O Lord God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. A prayer for God to judge evil. Why? Well, there are actually three main expressions of evil that at the beginning here, the psalm laments. And so before we really arrive at the answer to the question of why we would do this, we must take the time to appreciate just what the psalm is doing. Now, it is not entirely clear who the psalm is talking about when it speaks of the evil. It seems pretty clear that they at least in part are those who are in power and authority in the culture, quite likely within Israel at this time. Now, we know there are times where Israel was relatively faithful and they were facing enemies from outside. So they would sing of the evil being out there. And there were times where Israel was quite rebellious. And so the faithful in Israel would sing about the wicked who were in charge in Israel. All of that is possible. All of it is almost certainly in view. What are these wicked doing? First, verse 4. They pour out their arrogant words all the evildoers boast. So whoever the psalm is talking about in particular, what the psalmist is experiencing is a time where those who are being evil are bragging about it. They are boasting of it. And so it is not hidden. It is something that is being accepted, something to be proud of in the time and place where Israel lived. Verses 5 and 6. Well, first, verse 5. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. So not only are they boasting of evil, but there are things they are doing that are oppressing the covenant people in particular. Things that the evil are doing that is in the mode of of persecution, persecuting those who are faithful. But then verse 6, it becomes clear that this isn't just about persecuting the church, persecuting the covenant, but it's about oppressing the weak more broadly. Verse 6, they kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. Now, I hope you sense, as much as it might be enjoyable to debate and work out what the exact situation the psalmist was talking about, that it's describing an experience that God's people have always experienced, of looking around in the world and seeing that there is such a thing as evil. There is sin that people brag about in a way that can feel oppressive. There are times where the broader culture oppresses those who are faithful within the church, And there are times where it seems like wickedness is just in charge. And people use power to oppress those who are the most weak. 
These are circumstances that the church can imagine resonating with, that the church does resonate with in every time and place. But I want to highlight a verse in particular that I think we should most notice as describing what we experience. Verse 7. So 4 through 6 give this description of what what the wicked are doing. And this is almost a kind of summary statement. Verse 7. And they say, the Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. Brothers and sisters, perhaps this is the most difficult challenge. Perhaps this, and I I know for a fact, for some of us in particular right now, but for all of us at different points in life, this is actually the darkest, most fearful way that a broader culture oppresses God's people. Simply by saying, in what one writer calls an entire philosophy of life, that God doesn't care. That God doesn't see, God doesn't act. And so, whatever you think about the right or wrong of a particular action, it doesn't matter what God sees or does. He doesn't do anything. He doesn't act in the world. A philosophy of life that says, sure, maybe in some sort of philosophical way, you're going to argue there's a creator of some kind, but he's certainly not doing things in the world right now, so who cares how we live? You see, it is that statement, summarizing what the psalmist was up against then, That is exactly what we face today. I want to challenge you to think deeply about this, to do so in the light of having just sung this song, that so much of what you have dealt with just in this past week, you put all the categories, if it's a temptation to sin, if it's a sense of something you have to go through medically, physically, something in your health that is fearful, if it is a temptation to feel despairingly about life, On all of those points and so many more, the way that our culture oppresses us is not by threatening to throw you in jail, not by physically attacking you, but by relentlessly surrounding you with a philosophy of life that says, what does our verse say? The Lord does not see, the God of Jacob does not perceive. This is how you are being attacked right now. A relentless, oppressive, way of talking about the world, living in the world, feeling and thinking about the world that says God does not see or care. And Psalm 94 says, you need to sing about that. You need to sing about this reality, that there is wickedness that takes advantage of the needy, there is wickedness that brags about sin, and perhaps most of all, you are surrounded by a philosophy of life that says God is distant and far away and not involved. Sing about it. Do you sense, well, I'm guessing you do because we just sang it together and we've done it many, many times. Do you sense what it does to actually sing this and to do so together? One of the things it does is that we have brothers and sisters here right now, perhaps it's you, who needed to be awakened to this reality, who are tempted to go through life neglecting the fact that you face enemies, who are tempted to lay down your weapons and stop fighting. That we right now, perhaps you in particular at this very moment, are facing something where the deep wisdom you need is to say, you know what I'm actually tempted by right now? 
It's not the thing in front of me. It's not the actual decision, most of all. It's not the trial I'm facing, most of all. I am tempted to throw up my hands and say, God has no say. I am tempted to throw up my hands and say, God is not involved. And at that moment where you're tempted to say what God's word says doesn't matter, to give in to that philosophy of life, you are facing an enemy. What Ephesians 6 calls spiritual forces of darkness. You are facing real darkness and a real enemy and you need to be awakened to that reality that you might face it faithfully. That's for those seasons in life where we need to be awakened to it. But others of us are in seasons of life where, oh, we're aware. We're aware of the darkness. We know what we're up against. We think this too often. And in fact, if anything, we're tempted to a kind of despair about these temptations, the reality of wickedness, looking at the world and saying, look how terrible things are. Look how terrible it all is. Be encouraged that God's word acknowledges that reality. Be encouraged. And I know this sounds counterintuitive because when you're singing about all this wickedness, it doesn't feel encouraging. It is encouraging to be reminded that what you are noticing is not contrary to what God's word says. What you are experiencing is not beyond what God's word has said you will experience. That in fact, those darkest experiences of being aware of that evil in the world are exactly what the Bible describes. This is why it is so important that we sing this together that we sing a psalm like Psalm 94, that we would acknowledge to each other that in that experience, you are not alone. You are not alone, first of all, because God's word acknowledges it, and you are not alone because we're singing of it together. Lamenting about evil together is to encourage. Second, that's not where it stays though. So it's a lament about evil, but the psalm goes on to say more. It goes on to teach us to sing then, what I'm summarizing secondly, as wisdom about the creator. So first, there is this lament. There is evil in the world. It is oppressive. What do we do with that? Well, the psalm teaches us, second, to sing wisdom about the creator. Verse 8. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when will you be wise? Whoa. What is this in response to? It's in response to verse 7, most of all. So 4, 5, 6 describe all the wickedness being done. 7 describes that philosophy that says, none of it matters because God does not see. He doesn't act in the world. If there is a God, whatever, he's not involved. And the psalmist then teaches us to sing, that is foolish. It teaches us to sing together that that way of viewing the world is not just wrong. Now hear this carefully. It's not just against something the Bible says, because God says so. It is foolish. Understand, O dullest of the people, fools when you be wise. Now, listen to these words that we have just sung together. I actually want to read to you the, the uh, metrical version of it that we just sang. Who the ear made, does he hear not? Who formed eyes, does he not see? The language of our text. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Now our psalm here is doing very deep philosophy about life. 
It's saying, look, you can look around in the world and see that we creatures have sight. We creatures have hearing. We creatures live in a world, verse 10, where nations are disciplined. Meaning we can look around and see that evil, wickedness, leads to destruction. We can observe this. How many stories through history where someone claims ultimate power and might and they all end up dead? Every last one of them. We can observe this. And we can observe, verse 11, that there is such a thing, or end of verse 10 and verse 11, there is such a thing as knowledge. There is the ability to know things in the world. And what the psalm is saying is you can look around at your fellow human beings and see such a thing as sight and hearing, see human nature, the reality of love, of community, of relationships, of all of these things, and all of that points to the nature of God. Now, this is a matter of deep philosophy, not just something the Bible says, to say that which exists cannot be greater than the source of it. That which exists cannot be greater than the one that brought it into existence. And so if we have hearing and sight and these sorts of things, the very source of reality, the one who called us into existence, must have the ability to perceive because he's the one who gave it to us. What we have comes from the creator as the source of what we have. And so the argument here is that you can look at the way the world is and see it pointing to the creator, specifically to the God of Israel, the God of covenant, the God of relationship, the God who in Christ is made known as Trinity because we see these things in what it is to be human, in the very reality of human nature. And I want you to feel, if you imagine back to when we were singing it together, at that moment, that we're singing of the lament of wickedness, we're singing of the temptation to say God is not involved, and at that moment, the psalm says, man, you do realize what we confess together as the church is not just something that we are by a leap of faith randomly choosing to believe because we like it. We confess that which is most deeply true about reality. We confess that which centuries before us have confessed in faithfulness to God's word in looking at the world we confess that which resonates with the way the world is that in fact it doesn't make sense to say the creator is not involved that it is foolishness not just wrong but it is incoherent and in that moment of singing it we are being strengthened wisdom about the creator being wisdom about the creator then we can look at human nature in the image of God and then know something about what God is like then confirms all that the scriptures teach us about God's providence. That the one who called us into existence did so for the sake of fellowship with him and so that he is involved with us as his creatures. And the psalm goes on to celebrate this. We don't have time for every detail. Verse 12. Blessed is the man whom you discipline, whom you teach out of your law. Right? Now you have a different view. Even when bad things happen to us, it is God's discipline. God's teaching us the way that is good to give him rest from days of trouble and the end of verse 13, until a pit is dug for the wicked. Brothers and sisters, you need to sing this. You need to sing this. You are tempted right now to look up to people. I don't know. It's in a business world, cultural things they get to enjoy in life, to look to people in rebellion against God and think they've got something you don't have. To say there's something they're able to give themselves over to and enjoy that you're somehow missing out on because you are following Christ. To attempt to look at people and, and the apparent freedom, the things they can do. And this psalm is reminding that no, that way leads to destruction. 
as much as you might think you would somehow have it better if you, if you went the way of those around you, that that is in, the fact, in fact the way that leads to, verse 13, until a pit is dug for the wicked. At the very least, it means remember all humans die. Right? So no, no human role model has something to offer to you beyond what the wisdom of God's word can give you. But it is more than that. It's also reference to the reality of judgment, that evil and rebellion leads to destruction. How does this all fit as wisdom about the creator? Well, it's wisdom about providence, God's involvement in the creation. And then verse 15, for justice will return to the righteous and all the upright in heart will follow it. Justice will return, this confidence that God upholds uh, the moral order and the way uh, the world is meant to work. We have to skip a bunch more details. One more thing I want to highlight in this section about wisdom about creation, that the psalmist speaks from experience. So there's two things that can feel very far apart, but you need to hold them together. On the one hand, it's the psalmist is being very philosophical. You can look at the nature of reality and see how this points to what God is like. But he's also speaking from very personal experience. Verse 7, If the Lord had not been my help, my soul would soon have lived in the land of silence. When I thought my foot slips, your steadfast love, O Lord, held me up. So the psalmist now being redirected by wisdom to who God is and what he is like says, and you know what? I've experienced that. I've had times where I've cried out to God and in concrete ways I could observe I was blessed, I was rescued, I was encouraged, I was strengthened. And so we could say on the one hand there's things that are a mystery that God's people suffer. All of that is true. The psalm does not hide from it. But we also can point to times where we have known the comfort Verse 19, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul. The Christian church for something like, well, let's just say many hundreds of years has been given over to contemporary music. Hundreds of years. And when we do that, we pick out phrases like this. Your consolations cheer my soul. Right? And so our hymns from the 1800s all say that kind of thing. What does the psalm do? It doesn't pull it out. It situates it right within all this other language of the reality of evil, of praying for God to judge evil, and says, now in the reality of acknowledging all of that, of seeking to be wise about that, you say to each other as you sing together, when the cares of my heart are many, your consolations cheer my soul deeply personal experience, but situated within all of this glorious theology of who God is, but also difficult honesty about what the world is like. All of it combined together. Now, brothers and sisters, remember, what is the question we're asking throughout this? Why do we sing this? What does it mean that we sing it? What is the payoff of singing it? You are reminding each other when you sing this together that the enemies you're up against, the temptations you face are a matter of foolishness. We need to sing the words, understand, O dullest of the people, fools, when, you will be wise, when will you be wise? That we might remind each other that that thing you are tempted by, it is not simply a matter of a rule. 
It is not just something God's word says because God likes to make up rules. That there is foolishness on the path that is contrary to God's word and it leads to destruction. We must remind each other of this. More than that, we are speaking out of experience to encourage each other. As we sung those words, you, who are in a time of relative joy and gladness right now, had a brother or sister right next to you facing something deeply fearful, singing the same words. You, who was facing something deeply fearful in your future, were singing right next to someone who was singing with an overflowing sense of God has been faithful to this in the past. Some of us right now who are facing very difficult decisions, tempted by paths of destruction, sing this with those who have said, God has helped me time and again truly love what is good, and I have seen the goodness of it. I have seen the rightness of it. I have seen that though the path was hard and difficult, it is blessed. You sense how that together of singing it is a way in which we are all encouraging each other, pointing each other toward this. It feels as though in our cultural moment, we are always on the edge. This, I, if, there is, if I were to summarize what is most exhausting to me personally right now about being a Christian in this time and place, it is the feeling of always being on the edge of verse 7. Always staring over that cliff. That darkness always looming around. The Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. And we sing together with energy, with vigor, with joy, to say, no, that is foolishness that we could see from the creation, the glory of our creator who has made himself known in Christ. And brothers and sisters, that then ought to be enjoyed. That ought to be a joy, a gladness to do. At this point, my notes say, let's have a talk. Many of us, many, many, many of us, all of us to some extent, I think, because we know the church world around us, but many of us come from backgrounds that make psalm singing feel really weird. Reformed worship in general can feel difficult. Many of us, rightly, have embraced that as a matter of theological arguments. So from the history of the church, things about how scripture should inform what we do in worship, And we can point to the theological arguments for why we do what we do. We can even describe and defend why we agree with it. And we're basically happy with it. But we feel like we've given something up. Like on the one hand, there's worship that involves how we feel. That involves experience. And I guess we have to reject that. And instead we have worship that is something else. And I fear that too many of us still let that tension exist. As though over there, there's worship that involves feeling and experience, and we're against that. We don't like emotions. And so what we do is the singing of psalms. I want to challenge you, and I hope you can tell that the you I'm challenging is every last one of us. I want to challenge you to think of what the Psalms call us to do as being something that is meant to be deeply felt, that is meant to be experienced, 
that is meant to involve the whole person, including, dare I say it, our emotions. All of it is meant to be summed up and included. So I want to challenge us in a whole bunch of ways. If you are here and you come from that kind of background and you feel like you've had to give that up so that you could do this instead, say, no, 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 no. I want you to challenge us to feel more. I want you to challenge us to embrace experience in worship more. The key is not giving up feeling or giving up experience or giving up even something like emotion. The key is to reroute it, to resituate it, to relocate it, to resource it in the right things, to locate it as flowing from the right things. And what we are advocating for in the singing of something like Psalm 94 is a way of feeling that is deeper, thicker, more multidimensional, ancient, epic, cosmic, whole person, whole community, all of reality, and therefore in that context deeply felt and experienced. And so we need to power through coming into psalm singing with the goal of getting to what it always has in view, which is the experience of the whole person, including how we feel, what we experience as we come into Christian worship. But now anchored to everything we've been talking about up to this point. You singing with your brothers and sisters, facing all of these temptations, all of these fears, all of these challenges, singing of the same faith and the same wisdom, looking to the same Christ. All of that ought to be felt in a whole person way. All of who we are as a human being, delighting in, taking joy in, doing that together. The scriptures consistently affirm the reality of our felt experience, that is not what is rejected. What they do is they relocate it in the covenant community and the church's gathered worship. Finally, as we conclude, this is a praise for God's judgments. The psalm ends with this confidence that God will judge The Lord has become my stronghold, my God, the rock of my refuge. He will bring back on them their iniquity and wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord, our God, will wipe them out. And all that began with the prayer in verse 1. O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Welp. That's the weird part, right? Is this the part we're all wondering about when we sing a psalm like this? What does it mean to sing of judgment? Why would we sing for God's judgments? Quickly, vengeance. That's a totally misleading way of saying it. That's not what vengeance means here. Vengeance means justice. It means setting things right. It doesn't mean, uh, even, even the sense of, we think of it as like a human taking vengeance. It's driven by this sort of, you know, well, you have to say vengeance that way to get the point across. Not what it means here. It simply means justice. God setting the world right. Setting things how they ought to be. And we remember that we can only pray that because of the cross of Christ, that we pray for God to judge evil because we know judgment was poured out on Christ so that we might be rescued and forgiven. We also know that in the time of the New Testament, one of the ways God judges evil is by rescuing people from it. One of the ways he judges evil is by rescuing the nations who are oppressed by evil. And so in the time of mission, as we sing for God to judge evil, we are singing for the mission of the church to go forth and to rescue people from the clutches of evil. Nevertheless, we could say all of that. The New Testament is also clear. Revelation 19, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 
that we are also to look forward to the return of Christ to judge evil. We pray for God to judge evil. We must. And we must because it is essential for the Christian life to live in a way that is formed by this. It motivates us to look to Christ, to say he is the one who took the judgment on our behalf. It motivates us to be confident that that evil we are fearful of, that we are tempted by, it does not have the last word. And we need the confidence then, standing next to each other while singing, to say, brother, sister, that thing you are afraid of, that thing you are tempted to submit to, to give yourself over to, that evil in the world, that philosophy of life, the darkness you're constantly staring into, we pray for God to judge, and he will. And we are confident that that evil does not have the last word because at the cross of Christ, where that evil did its worst and Christ went to the grave, the resurrection was the announcement that at the cross all of that evil was being defeated. It is foolish and it will be judged. It does not win. And therefore, you can confess with verse 22, but the Lord has become my stronghold and my God, the rock of my refuge. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to love the being together in worship, to allow ourselves to enjoy, to delight in the ways in which we encourage each other as we sing. And we pray that you would use this being together in worship to direct us toward you. You know perfectly, even as we are about to sing and to come to the Lord's table, you know perfectly all the ways we are tempted by the darkness. And so we ask you then by your spirit to turn us toward you as a gift of your grace. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.